the way that I see it, and I'm glad that we, we came back to the Tower of Babel because I did want to say this, there was this negative impact that the pride of humanity to try to see themselves as equals to God mm -hmm. caused them to be dispersed and to have separate languages. Yeah. And yet, at the very end, we see every knee shall bow of every tongue, every mm. tribe, every nation mm. gathered together at the throne of God. Are you a universalist? <laughs> back to Barefoot to Emmaus. Hello, I'm Byron. And this is Char. We're glad you're with us. Whew. All right, this is probably only our fourth podcast. Yeah. Something like that. And we're getting into some interesting themes. We have a very special one for you tonight. We will be talking about language. More specifically, the diversity of languages. So, not specifically... Uh, there, there's an author we read recently who was talking about the, the metaphor and the symbolism and the purpose of language itself. And we're, we're not talking, I, I don't want to talk as core to what language is, but more specifically to what are the implications of having multiple or different types of languages. Yeah. Um, for, for instance, like just, I don't know how many languages there are on the planet, thousands Right, but, you know, common ones, like Cantonese, yeah. and English, and Spanish, and that type of stuff. But even, you know, I'm just thinking now, as you said that, about the variations within languages, that we have mm. dialects, mm -hmm. and some dialects even become so pronounced to become their own languages, and there are cultural and other significant reasons why it's to separate something as a dialect as opposed to a language. But, um, I mean, when we consider... Uh, Ebonics, African-American vernacular English, Yeah, it's seen by the white Western English sphere as being broken English instead of recognizing the value that it has as its own dialect or language. Yeah. I am curious as we, as we pack into this topic how just all the places that we can go with this, this is going to be really <laughs> exciting. And we only have an hour. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll have to be discerning. Um, from a theological lens, I think it, it would behoove us to start with the idea of Babel, mm. right? The Tower of Babel, which it itself, right? What is that reference to Babylon? But that's also where we in English get our word to babble, to speak. Mm -hmm. Like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> was a, there was a, there was a saint we were talking about in class uh, who was a barber, barber, and that might have something to do with beards, but it, I, I've also heard that it has something to do with that's just what their language sounded like to foreigners. Bar, 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 bar. Really? Yeah. So anyway, language, the diversity of it, and specifically like the intelligibleness or unintelligibleness of it, language is first presented to us in the Bible really early on as a disruptive force, a, dis, a de unifying yeah, because language is only pointed out when it's not universal. 
Yeah. You know, if everyone is speaking the same tongue, there's no need to signify it as anything. But in the story of the Tower of Babel, we see this multitude break down where the people who have one voice, one language, one culture, see it unto themselves as being able to together lift themselves up to the throne of God. So they start building this tower where they're able to communicate with one another and use their newly established tools and understanding of infrastructure. um, Because we just see cities pop up now. Mm And they just, they're full of themselves in this way. And the story goes that God looked down upon them and then essentially just divided them with these different languages and spread them out across. And that's why we have these different nations and different tongues. Which language has a lot to do with culture. Yeah. Right? Like, language creates culture in some ways. And culture creates language. It's this, I think, feedback loop. They work together for sure. But language is just one facet of culture. Yeah, right. I mean, I... Sure, sure, of course. I mean, different cooking styles is an aspect of culture. But you can have this, You can have a similar language, one that started, originated the same, and perhaps hasn't even been split for that long. Yeah. But potentially vastly different cultures, depending on where you are in the world and sure. what your, you know, context is there. Environmentally, geographically, you know, socially. I mean, even thinking about um, colonialism. Yeah. Absolutely. Languages that were brought over and imposed upon the local people, as that became their language, to certain extents, because I know that uh, cultural erasure is often also part of the imperial colonialism, but to a certain extent, some aspects of culture also were retained, in which case, this forced linguistic change would mean that that same language would be shared by very different cultures. I think yes and no. I think there's something about the imperialism of language that uh, right like so let's take an extreme example right like uh like pidgin languages like pidgin Mm -hmm. english in hawaii or like uh creole french whatever right like these may have these languages externally may have been imposed but then devolved evolved whatever they were into something different just kind of naturally or because the cultural tie on the language pulled it away from something that I think it originally was. Yeah. Um, plus, I think I, I, I'm i thinking a little bit of just like a deeper time scale. Mm-hmm. Right? Colonialism, to some extent, has not been around that long. I, I mean, I'd be interested to see what the Romans did with their languages, with like how, how universal was Latin. Yeah during the Roman occupation of all these things. It seems, you know, Pilate probably, Pontius Pilate, did he learn Aramaic? Or did the occupiers have to learn Latin? And everyone seemed to speak Greek. Yeah. So I I think there's a lot of interesting implications. But you, you brought up a point of colonialism. The elimination of language was a tool for the suppression and destruction of indigenous american culture yeah you know i have read stories of indigenous people or their ancestors being forced to like write i will not speak my language in class i will not speak my language in class Mm -hmm. you know over and over they were punished for speaking their language because it was a facet of their culture because it was a facet of their belief system which was seen Mm. as oppositional to christianity 
hmm. or civilization in general. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was part of the whole structure of oppression where they looked upon the indigenous people as being subhuman. And so they were mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. redeeming their humanity in this, in this movie it was seen wow. as very, um, you know, for their benefit in yes. part. They, yeah. That's how they justified it. Um, but I, I agree with you that the suppression of their and elimination of, of their language, their local languages was essential for that assimilation process, for that cultural erasure, because the ability to communicate outside of the grasp of the oppressor is inherently powerful. Yeah. Like that is grounds for mm, resurrection, yes. insurrectionist action. Yeah. My my parents would sometimes. This is nowhere near on the on the magnitude of the scale you just talked about. But my parents um, would often speak in Arabic to each yeah. other when they didn't want the kids to understand what was up. And if they and if and once we started to learn Arabic a little bit, they started to you know speak in Hebrew or some other language that they kind of both knew. My aunt and uncle do that with Japanese okay, yeah. very occasionally. But I think it is interesting to have this like secret code language yeah. <laughs> as a way, like kind of as this weird extension of the unintelligibility, this secrecy, this dispersion that was hypothetically began at Babel. Now, of course, you can trace languages, right? <laughs> Go figure, the earth is older than 6,000 years old. And you can tell that just by tracing languages back yeah. to various roots. You brought up a things. really interesting thing, and we'll get back to Babel because I think that is important. But sure. you brought up an important point about how languages can change culturally. Mm. Um, and you, you referenced pidgin. And a reading that I had from our, our speech communications class oh, yes. spoke about how the unusual sounds, the difficult sounds to speak, <laughs> like the TH that we have in English, <laughs> you probably can't even hear that. <laughs> um, Specifically the or also the? Uh, I, I think it's it's both a soft and the hard one yeah. are not natural sounds to make. You don't find them in very many other languages. Similar also to the click sound. Um, of Porsche? Yes, exactly. That these are these are difficult sounds to repeat, and so as time goes on, they tend to be removed from languages. You tend that to have. Make sense. How would they start? How would they arise in the first place? That. I, I don't actually know the answer to that question. That is a really interesting question. But but the purpose of language is communication. Mm -hmm. And perhaps at some point, you know, the thing with English, and this might be where the TH sound comes from, is that it's such a smattering of different languages that perhaps to make a greater distinction between these various different roots and languages that were coming together into one, they needed something else to add on top of it. Well, the, the the sound specifically is like this funky backwards six-shaped D thing that has a cross across In the, the International Phonetic Alphabet? Well, in, in like ancient Norse or huh. something, right? Old, old English has the. It's it's in like Beowulf and stuff. Hmm. But Beowulf also has the... The very first word of Beowulf is quit. And is not a like not a sound we have in English anymore. But, I mean, I, I just want to sit here and, like, try to identify as many hard-to-pronounce Yeah, well, in, in Swedish, we have the sound that's an S-J, and it's like, who. 
So it's like, I've, I've tried to explain how to do this. Yeah. And it, it's like making an H sound. So like a, but then you, you round your lips to a W. So it's like, and you just kind of like round it off at the end. Yeah. You got to have more of the W. Who? Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, so In that's South another African, sound. there's this um, she. Uh, <laughs> hard to explain what I'm doing with my mouth. No, it's right like now. Welsh too. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like if you're going to go home and play some Starcraft with your friends online. Yeah. yeah. Like the sh. Anyway, that's a letter or a sound or like Russian bloom, like oh. Yeah. Or Estonian is very hard to say for yeah. English speakers. But even like squirrel is a hard word to say in French. It, like squirrel. 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 <laughs> yeah. Or there, you know, there's some like chevid uh, or some words in in Hebrew that are. Yeah. Cherev. Cherev. Oh, cherev. Yes, the r. You know, we're not saying herev. Yeah. That would sound atrocious. Well, it'd be different. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Language, yeah, in my mind, is a code. It's a it's a structure that we have created in order to have more efficient and clear communication. Mm-hmm. Written language, of course, is for the um, preservation over time, but oral language evolved. Wow. I imagine, yeah, to have a greater distinction and understanding of what one is trying to communicate to the other. And so imagine in cultures that, that can move past simply, you know, the agrarian or hunter gatherer or other expressly, um, survival related work Mm -hmm. to begin to pontificate among philosophy and whatnot, or other things that can come from more downtime. Perhaps language evolved to make space for new ideas that went beyond the simple tasks that someone needed to accomplish and needed to communicate one person to another. You think so? You wouldn't have like a sense of Zog, you go spear bull or something like that, right? Like we got, uh, hypothetically, we got the language gene from Neanderthals. Yeah. That's something that I've read about in human evolution terms. Well, number one, I'm going to push back on that idea that you, I don't think culture arose only once it was convenient or once we had space for it. You know, we have those handprint oh, paintings. No. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Sorry. Let me let me clarify. I don't mean to say that culture arose there. Well, even language. No, no, no. The, the, the complexity of language, I think. I think language necessarily evolved when there was a new need for it. So as, yes. as you said, bog, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Go spear that boar. <laughs> um, that was necessary communication. Yeah. That as, you know, if we were planning how to figure out who's hunting, who's, you know, protecting the family or whatnot, you know, that, sure. that those were necessary forms of communication. But we didn't need to think, why does the sun rise up and down? Um, I, don't, I don't know if we can know that. Yeah. I I resist this and I'm not, I'm not saying you're the only one who does this. I resist this sense of like infantilizing of the past. Yeah. Um or what's what's the right word I'm thinking of? I I can't think of it right right, right now, but that like it it, it bring, that that concept brings with it this sense of progressivism. And I don't think we're necessarily any smarter. I mean, for one thing, people have Number one, well, it's it's certainly not an 
an ongoing thing. I think the peak of the English language was probably about the... Shakespearean era? No, I I think a little after Shakespeare, actually. Um, I think Victorian, or maybe slightly earlier than Victorian. Shakespeare still had some stuff that he was working on. And what do you mean by peak? The the beauty of it, the, the clarity of it, right? Shakespeare is a great example. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's entirely clear what she's saying. Whereas I think modern, modern English leaves a whole lot of ambiguity. And I'm not sure why that is. I think in, in, in addition, our word count has, I mean, except for, except for um, technical words that have arisen because now we just need new words for things like a computer. But looking at a language is word count. Right, like English has, it's a pretty big language, as opposed to Japanese has just fewer words than yeah. English. Russian is one of the biggest languages. Yeah. It's just got so many words. And therefore, Russian literature is, from what I've heard, I haven't read much Dostoevsky, and even if I could, I'd be reading in English, right? So, yeah. You know, that it's an interesting thought that you say, but I do feel like you're referencing the academics. You're referencing the, the writers, the people who are already in high society who I imagine don't represent the entirety of the English language as it was communicated and performed. I don't think Shakespeare was particularly high society. Right? He was very accessible. I don't think his writings necessarily that accessible. You're modern. But no, I mean, just I, I get this from having studied acting that there's you can tell from the architecture of the Globe Theater in London that there were common people, you know, the groundlings. Yeah. And, you know, Shakespeare tossed them a bone every once in a while with his body humor. You know, but, but I think it was understood that they, underst- they understood what he was saying. Yeah, I, the, the only pushback, I, I think, is there were other people who had English as their primary form of communication who were either not white or otherwise not a part of that general when when, where group i mean if you're talking 1800s there are plenty of people who are in the united states shakespeare was 17th century so 16 somethings oh wow well i'm I'm way off on my timeline (laughs) here no no no. i i I led i led you astray there because i i kind of allied the victorian and shakespearean they there was definitely some stuff before victorians and after shakespeare in the late 18th This is interesting. So you think at the time of Shakespeare, and this is way outside of my ballpark, but you think at the time of Shakespeare, so in England, your average everyday person spoke on par with Shakespeare. I don't know about spoke on par, but could understand that level, right? It was still a a semi-oral tradition, right? Like Shakespeare wrote his plays down and the actors would read them once and then know the play. Yeah. Right? We have lost that skill. And I think that has something to do with language and whether or not we write it down and how, you know, what's the accessibility of literacy and all those things. But I, as far as I can remember from my studies, when I was studying Shakespeare, that yes, it was accessible knowledge or accessible language. Yeah, well, the brain changes over time. And I know this is going way away from language. <laughs> um, but you... You mentioned how uh, the the critique of this notion of primitivism. Primitive, that's it. And I agree with you uh, that the human mind was not necessarily more primitive in the past as much as it was 
programmed for different purposes. Yeah. So spatial locutive awareness, the ability to know how many of us something is around, where they mm. are, this and to retain point. that information so you can go back to your tribe, yeah. be like, we have this thing over here, this thing over here, this, 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 this. Yeah. Here's the threat right here. Here's where the food is. Mm-hmm. And then they could all go and come follow. So, this, And also on a physical level, too, the um, part of the brain that engages the, the physical yeah. enactment, you know, like there is so much more need of this fight, flight, mm-hmm. survival mentality, so much of which we've totally lost. <laughs> yeah. And so in a one-to-one survival setting, we would be trash compared to them. But that's not what our modern day generally looks like. That's true. And I think we have adapted to a more specific need that we have now. Yeah. Which uses, I think, different things, right? Like there's this idea, again, a little bit tangential, but there is more information in one copy of the New York Sunday Times, whatever, New York Times Sunday edition, than than like a middle ages farmer would have gotten in an entire year right there's just more information and we get that information through language yeah right bring it back home (laughs) in in addition um well i mean to to go back to go back away for a second our, our our brain interpreting language is different from interpreting words which is different from interpreting images right so screens is so much more information even than language or words or something kind of like a picture is worth a thousand words than what's a video worth Hmm. you know so to speak but um i think i mean again so much of this is speculative i've heard once you know there's this study that if you leave like people alone they will develop language what they won't initially what they won't necessarily do is develop writing right kids who've been like neglected or something they they can speak they can speak yeah it's learning to read and write that is much more difficult my great my grandfather holgar i think my my grandfather's older brother like dropped out of school when he was in fourth grade to go do some farming stuff and never learned to read Hmm. and up till his dying day his wife read the road signs while they were driving right he was an intelligent man he yeah, was, sure. uh, he could speak well, like language. So language and reading and, and words and all of these things are not necessarily the same things. They don't go into the same parts of our brain. But to your comment about like the primitiveness of language, there's this fascinating video I watched about colors yes, and the yes. words for colors. Yeah. Right. So the wine dark sea is what uh, Homer calls the ocean in the Iliad odyssey whichever one of them um i'm not the most literate i'll make mistakes and i'll accept them um right the wine dark sea what color is wine char it's i don't know it's red right (laughs) i thought you're looking for more specific no the the ocean mahogany no the the ocean is not red so what the heck was going on well studies show that like if you analyze languages when a color gets named uh, has a typical pattern that arises. Red is usually, you know, black and white distinctions are the first to arise. Red is the first, like, color to be given a word. And then you get distinctions uh, with, like, red. I don't remember the order of it, but, like, purple, orange, greens uh, are pretty early in there. 
Um, but blue is actually one of the last colors to ever be given a name, which is ridiculous because the sky is blue, the ocean is blue, as far as we know, right? Like, what words are going to arise for these things in the future? Well, I think, I think it's kind of the same thing as we were talking about in the beginning about language in the Bible. You don't mm. see language mentioned until the Tower of Babel yeah. because there was just, it was all around you. It was the same thing. Yeah, the water Everyone spoke the same language. You didn't need to distinguish. If the water is blue and the sky is blue and everything around you is blue, that's the baseline. Yeah. So you don't need a word for it. You yeah. just need a word for everything else. I guess that makes sense. But I think to this study that you're talking about, there's a really interesting aspect of language, which is so crucial as we talk about how language relates to the Bible. Uh, namely, that language actually shapes our reality. Mm. It shapes our perception of reality. And so there's this tribe, I think it was an Aborigine tribe in Australia, that had a very select few amount of words. It was like seven words for colors. And they were these general categories of their environment. So like land, sea, sky kind of thing. Um, and there was an interesting aspect where blue and green were in the same category. Mm. So looking at a color wheel that to a Western eye, the, the green or the blue square out of all of the other green squares, if you have a circle of green squares and you have one blue square, mm -hmm. To the Western eye, it was obvious which one the blue one was, but for them, they, they weren't able to see the distinction because in their language, in the way that it had shaped their perception, those were the same thing. They weren't trained to differentiate. Yeah. Yeah. And more interestingly, they had green split into two different categories. And so there was a slightly different green hue. The same Aboriginal group? Yeah, same Aboriginal group. So there's a slightly different green hue that was then put in a circle of greens. So one that's slightly different than the rest, that to the Western eye, they couldn't tell the difference. They looked really close, couldn't, couldn't see, because it all looked like green to them. Yeah. And to the Aborigines, it's like, it's right there, it's obvious. So it's not a lack of cognitive development that no. they're limited, yeah, but not. it is about perception. I think actually Russian, you mentioned, has the most language, words for colors as well for blue specifically and so their ability to perceive these various hues and tones is richly greater than someone say from the united states or someone who speaks english yeah yeah and how that relates to the bible then is that the original text of the old testament was written in hebrew mm. biblical hebrew yeah. and of the new testament we see mostly greek a little bit of aramaic yeah kind of mixed in there. Now, scholars have done their best to translate the Bible and new translations are continually coming out as different people have their own insights to what they think it is. <laughs> new words pop up, and Byron, you can speak to this later. Um, well, so we'll, we'll put a little tab on that. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, words that didn't exist then, they didn't have a concept for that, that are later imposed upon the text. And so there are problematic natures to translations as well. But the key thing that I want to get to here is that with the Hebrew language especially, but Greek as well, there was a richness to these words. And mm. Byron, you, you and I, were studying Hebrew right now, biblical mm. Hebrew, and all these words have various different meanings. It's, it's, it, yeah. They're rooted in what's you know, called the triliteral root. So you have these three core letters that is, has this concept and so maybe it's a mix of dirt and soil and land and earth 
kind of all as one. Yeah, it's like the concept that is somehow derived. Like, what, what's the word for instrument, vessel, weapon? Uh, Kili. Kili. Something, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's right. That's like, I don't see a particular, like, I can bend my mind into thinking how instrument, vessel, weapon is the same thing yeah you know or there's another word that's um i'm training my brain to recognize reading them not like saying them <laughs> but um top chief rush yeah rush um uh, it's just a different concept yeah so even if it's translated to the best of scholars abilities yeah. into english you lose so much yeah that's what makes it so interesting to study the old languages yeah there is a richness that by just reading the English we lose. That's a thing that I discovered when I was learning Japanese, that there's words that like are often um, communicated as having a particular connotation or a particular definition, but in in context, like um, like the word baka means idiot, but it it's not as like harsh as it is in English, um, you know, or, or Japanese has a couple different ways to say like, you, and some of them are insults by themselves. The word just means you, but it's hey, like, you, you know, but it's like you bastard like, yeah. is, is connected within just the word. Um, that's actually a fun thing about various languages is like Arabic, uh, the best swears, the best, <laughs> the best blessings, the best like descriptive uh... words. Whereas Japanese is pretty unimaginative with its, with its insults hmm. um, or compliments. Um, they like to keep it neutral. It's all about the connotation and like the intonation. So yeah, like limits of language and stuff. That, oh, that's such an interesting thought. So the Old Testament especially, much more than the New Testament, yeah. was an oral history mm -hmm. in the beginning. And... Was the word. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that makes me think, how much in the communication of this oral history might there have been an oral connotation mm. with body language and tone that simply can't be caught when you write it down? Yeah. Or, or even, like, uh, euphemisms. Well, I, was just, I was just reading... <laughs> the um, hand, the foot. Yeah, I was just reading uh, Ruth, and it has this idea of, like, go uncover his feet. What does it mean? And, you know, or even... Uh, Noah, you know, to uncover nakedness. Yeah. Right? These these words typically, like, are they sexual? Like, yes. There's this one point where I think Rehoboam, son of Solomon, says, like, my pinky is thicker than my father's waist. It's like, he's not saying waist. <laughs> he's talking about a different body part. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, that's lost in language. Yeah. And you can, like, suss it out, but... Jesus has an interesting one, too, where uh, he said, if your hand causes you to sin, it is better for you to cut off your hand than to have your hand and burn in hell. Mm -hmm. um, and our friend Daniel pointed out to us that the hand was a euphemism at that time for a penis. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of like, oh, if you are causing damage mm -hmm. to another person through sexual abuse... Mm -hmm a forcible castration would be better <laughs> than the, so as to protect the other person than yeah. the, you know, spiritual death caused upon oneself. Yeah, that's, 
There's a lot there. There's so much there. That's worth unpacking at a different time. I want to get back to, I mean, oh, no, I, I wanted to jump back to like early biblical inter, um, yeah. implications of language and stuff, right? We were just reading about uh, Athanasius and the early councils um, and heresies mm-hmm. and all these things. Um, Fun stuff. And, oh, yeah. One of them was talking about, or a lot of them were talking about um, Jesus' logos as word. Mm-hmm. So even, like, what does it mean that Jesus is the language God decides to use mm. to some extent? Or, like, another spiritualization of languages. Well, what the heck is speaking in tongues? Yeah. Should we hop over there? Let's hop there. Okay. I want, at some point, I'd also love to, like, dissect a little bit about, like, Pentecost as the fulfillment or culmination of... Well, we're hopping right over to Pentecost, so go ahead. Take us away. Well, you know, I guess speaking in tongues and Pentecost kind of... Go hand in hand. In the same... Ha-ha, hand I know. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Gross, that's gay. Wow, it's interesting. I'm just taking a diversion to, to, to note that my first inclination of the the euphemistic interpretation of hand in hand is still like ew that's gay even though i am and that i hypothetically have no problem you're being facetious though right uh i mean yes and no my my first internal inclination was like ew Hmm. um gotta keep it pg y'all i mean maybe whatever uh there was there was one other thought i had about oh um if God like instituted hypothetically this idea of different languages. Does mm-hmm. that mean the aspect of learning a language through our, our through our own power? Like, does that negate or work against God's will for the separation? Yeah, like if God diversified the languages yeah. so as to inhibit communication. Well, if everyone just like stayed there and learned each other's languages for a little bit, they would have been able to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Right? What would God have done? <laughs> I mean, you know, this gets to the the tension between do we interpret this realistically yeah, or yeah. figuratively, mythopoetically. I think there's always value to interpreting these stories, literally, even if you don't believe it to be literal, because I think there's a lot of richness in what it is trying to communicate to us. Yes. But the way that I see it, and I'm glad that we, we came back to the Tower of Babel because I did want to say this, there was this negative impact that the pride of humanity to try to see themselves as equals to God Mm -hmm. caused them to be dispersed and to have separate languages. And yet at the very end, we see every knee shall bow of every tongue, every Mm. tribe, every nation Mm. gathered together at the throne of God. Are you a universalist? (laughs) There is this redemption of something that in the very beginning was seen and created as quote unquote bad. Mm. That it is now not erased, but celebrated. That diversity is celebrated, Amen. and that's huge. Amen. So I just wanted to put that out there because that's a really important part as we're talking about language. Good point. Good point. Good point. Good point. Pentecost then is kind of the the model or the mechanism of this redemption. Some yeah. people talk about like, oh, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. No, it's the fulfillment. Right? Yeah, like I like came Jesus, not to yeah. abolish the law. Um, right, there's there's no shaming of those different languages. Um, 
the opposite. It's yes. a celebration. Exactly. We see people coming from all over, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem and hearing their native tongue mm-hmm. being spoken by these Galileans. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, wait, what? What? You know my language? That is so relational. That mm-hmm. is welcoming them in. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I love that so much that yeah. it is, in fact, in their uniqueness that the, the Spirit is able to manifest this universality to reach all people and bring them in. It also decentralizes or, like, demystifies uh, any idea of, um, like, the magic or something of a particular language, hmm. right? Like, word, word magic is definitely a thing um, in ancient cultures... And arguably in Bible timey cultures, yeah, yeah. Right? Like in, I think it's Acts four, five, six, seven, somewhere early Acts. Um, it's talking about the name of Jesus, hmm. right? The the council is saying, don't don't speak anymore the name of Jesus, or don't use this power in the name of Jesus. Yeah. When but, we see Peter and Paul heal in the name of Jesus, stand. So I, you know, I guess there's some sort of. Thing there but is it you know if they said yeshua right is that the magic word to say right we kind of talked about this abracadabra yeshua <laughs> right you know, like we talked about this when we touched on names you know but there's nothing about i don't think there's anything particularly holy about the name itself you know we can say jesus we can say yeshua we can say because um, language changes you mean and that and that there's a different word for that name in every other language. Yeah, Jesus. Like Jesus, yeah. Jesus, yeah. Jesus. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's a facet of language as well. And if God hadn't diversified languages, right? Like, churches for the heck of a long time, Orthodox, uh, Catholic churches, no shade, but would use, <laughs> like, would use unintelligible languages. This is, again, no shade. I think it's one of the, I think it's, an inaccessible aspect of Islam that like mm-hmm. you have Indonesian Muslims reciting or even even Hebrew like you have New York Jews right reciting these things that they don't really like they don't speak Hebrew they don't speak um, Arabic they don't speak especially not like you know 600 AD Arabic yeah that's so interesting you know, so we're not gonna you know there's no magical power like Christian Zionists in like reading the Psalms in Hebrew. Hmm. Like if it gets us closer to an understanding of God, yeah, sure. Yeah. But that's a linguistic, like earthly thing. There's no magic in it. And I think that's part of what happens at Pentecost is God like redeems and reclaims or not even reclaims, just claims all languages. I'm 99% on the exact same page as you. And the 1% that I hold back is that I think there is a significance to reverence i think it can be very much misplaced and i think that's often what we see but i think that to esteem something as being connected to the holy and Mm -hmm. therefore we want to honor even that thing Mm -hmm. not honor that thing as god but to to see that in itself having touched the holy as being holy in some way that there's there's power to that and you know in my mind in the pantheistic view all creation that is made by God carries the fingerprint of God, that, it, yeah. you know, God is in all things, um, that all things are holy and that we should have a reverence for all things around us. Yeah. Um, but I get that, where if you have a language 
I, I don't know why Latin for the Catholic Church. I don't see Latin was, you know, the Roman imperialistic conquest and institutionalization of Christianity. So yeah. hardly the most holy of languages. And yet, I'm a, a pin in that. Don't forget that. Jesus came at a time when the closest thing to a universal language had ever existed on the planet. Hmm. Right? Jesus came at a time, or there's some fancy, like, theology or word or something behind this, um, like the Pachem, something about, you know, peace um, of Rome. They had a road system. They had a language system. They had a cultural system that was, I guess, I mean, the Mongolians had the biggest empire in the universe. Mm -hmm. Um but they didn't have a cultural unifying force, whereas yeah. Rome did, um, for better or worse, for worse in many ways, but for better in terms of accessibility. So everyone spoke Latin, so it was accessible at a time. Yeah. I don't know how that interplays with what you were saying. Yeah, well, accessibility and holiness um, aren't necessarily the same thing. I, I, I think... Well, I think they're often, like, opposites, or yeah. presented as opposites. Yes. Yeah. But... I think that's that's the issue that we're both kind of pointing at is yes. that when you point towards this reverence to the lack of accessibility, mm. you are in fact keeping people distant from that which is holy. Like the Catholic Church in Vatican II Council, this is, so there's this ecumenical council similar to you know the ones that we were studying way back in the day, you know the 300, 400s. Um, but this one was in the 60s, 62 to 65, 1962 to 65, so yeah. pretty recent. 19. 1960. Yes. Yes. The 1960s, not the 60s. Since, <laughs> since we're talking yes. about it. Uh, so the 1962 to 65, there was an ecumenical council where um, the Catholic Church was interested in figuring out, in some ways desperate to figure out how they can maintain relevance in a vastly changing world yeah and there were some really powerful things that came out of this most notably from the uh command of uh, gaudium et spes the that uh, uh local parishes can can speak their local language instead of speaking in latin mm. and this made their services accessible this mm. made the people the local people be able to engage with the service to understand what was being said mm -hmm. and to thus um, engage in the in their own religious life mm -hmm. that it wasn't something that was instituted and imposed upon them but it was something that they could organically then develop on their own and that's it's actually out of that that was very catalytic to the rise of liberation theology the ability mm -hmm. of the poor campesinos the the peasant workers to feel control over their own understanding of god that it wasn't something yeah. that was held only by the priests yeah. and the bishops but it was something that they had access to themselves yeah i think there was a there was a whole wave of that there have been various waves of um accessibility to the scriptures um some of which has been promoted by the church and some of which has been uh opposed by the church but luther was a huge proponent of uh, you know, there was printing press around his time, and that was a huge mode of translating the Bible itself mm. into different languages. Um, and even right, Jesus, you know, the, the Great Commission, you know, go preach the gospel in all, um, uh, to all nations. And there, there are a couple 
more modern. I, I know some, you know, evangelicals who have this kind of understanding, this way of forcing the second coming. Like, once we've accomplished that, then Jesus will come back, right? So once the gospel has been, you know, once the Bible has been translated into every language and it is accessible, then there's no one who fits that kind of Romans 2 caveat of like, oh, if you haven't heard, then you're excused from this kind of judgment thing. It is better to have not heard <laughs> yeah. than to have heard and not do, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, and th this this gets into a weird inter interpretation of uh, mission work, right? Like, technically, if people who have never heard of Christ are kind of saved de facto, according to Paul... Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated. I than think that. it's a little bit more complicated, but on the, you know, on the farthest extremes of things, then like the best thing that could possibly be done for human salvation is to eradicate all Christians. <laughs> There's one strategy. There's one strategy. I mean, another strategy, another like ridiculously insane strategy would be to eliminate other languages. Right? Make wow. it so that right and it's this it's this same uh really twisted mentality behind environmentalism or an anti-environmentalism from a christian accelerationist perspective well if we destroy the earth now that's gonna fulfill the prophecies that revelation talks about that jesus indicates so anyway this idea uh, th those are both like those are all extreme extreme positions um but there's is it wycliffe um there, there's a couple modern christian organizations that are very 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 committed to bible translation and the bible is the most translated text hands down by a lot so that there is something about accessibility right i dated a wonderful woman whose parents grew up in the amazon translating the bible into local hmm. uh languages i i know a couple of missionaries who have similar things that their primary mode to uncontact pe uncontacted people groups was through their language hmm. so i mean that gets really problematic in yeah. some ways yeah um i think it's less problematic than other ways of doing it right american style like you can't speak your language because it is in opposition to christ how about you know let's put christ in your language but again like issues of translation japan has a really really fascinating uh, relationship to Christianity because the first Christians who went in didn't know how to divorce their language from their culture, hmm. for one thing, um, and didn't know how to ex make the language accessible to Japan. So they like used this word for sun or like deity or god, and the word they used was the same word for like the the sun, the star, oh, really? in, in the sky. And there was a part of Japanese like. Um, ideology or culture or religion at that time that like was that made the sun this figure that was pretty antagonistic to humanity oh right um you know it was this thing that causes you to toil and sweat and like is uncomfortable and all of that so because of language we don't want this jesus exactly son. because of mistakes with language japan remains and because of some major um unfortunate fumbles with uh essentially imperialism and japan was frankly smart enough to root it out pretty violently actually but um anyway japan to this day remains the lowest 
remains with the lowest Christian population of any like developed nation. Yeah. Um, like less than one percent. Whereas Korea, an, a relatively similar culture, is now like one of the per capita most Christian nations. They're all Presbyterians. <laughs> not all. Not all. Presbyters. Yeah, but the big, you know, the biggest Presbyterian church in the world is in South Korea. Yeah. You know, China is has some kind of a mix between the two in terms of relationship to Christianity, and a lot of that just came down to language. Yeah, and, you know, the way that the Korean church prays mm. is really powerful. There's this shared voice mm. of everyone speaking their prayer at the same time. Yeah. And that obviously was influenced culturally. And I'm curious how much language versus culture play into the way that Christianity is adopted to not be uh, consuming or eroding of, of a culture, but to be fitting into that culture and uplifting mm. that culture. In a Pentecost way. Not, in a, not necessarily a Pentecostal way, but in a Pentecost way, yeah? Yeah. In, in the way that the nuances of the language and culture are celebrated as part of the spiritual experience. Like I think about um, churches in uh, various countries in Africa that have this bombastic and joyful and lively style of worship mm. compared to the colder and sullen European contemplative get your head down and your hands together um, obviously that has to do with the culture of the people but it's it's manifesting in their spiritual lives as well in a mm -hmm. way that I think is really important mm -hmm. and that and that counteracts some of the imperialistic influence yeah I wanted to talk about going back to language. <laughs> yeah. Um, what makes a language? Because it's very easy to say the phonations of our mouths or our vocal cords. And the meditations of our hearts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a communicable code uh -huh. that is repeated so that we can all understand what's going on. But... Then you... Repeated and repeatable. Yes, precisely. Uh, but then we have, for example, the various sign languages. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I wouldn't restrict it to mouth. Yeah, so there, there are yeah, other ways Morse to code communicate. Is... Morse code can be considered a language, absolutely. But is it a language or a code, right? Morse code is in English. Hmm. Right. That, one might be, that one might be... It's more of just an alphabet. Yeah. Which is I'm sure itself. you could evolve that into a language, though. Certainly. I mean, there's like a whistle language. Yeah. Or there's a couple of them. And we talk about body language. Mm. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it is a full language because it complements what languages we already speak. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very supplemental as opposed to being independent. Yeah. Uh, but theoretically, that could also evolve to be its own language. Um, in a way that would probably be similar to sign language, but be less about indicative expressions with one's hands and more subtle gestures 
mm-hmm. that someone has learned to read specifically into. Yeah. But, I mean, how would you even codify those? How would you communicate them? I mean, we, we talked about the distinction between written language and not, but... I guess it depends on how specific you need to communicate. You know, if, if all we need to communicate is our general emotional well-being and needs and physical well-being and needs, that could probably be done with subtle gestures in the body. Yeah. But, you know, if I give you a hug, is that language? It's certainly communicative. I don't know if I would call it language. I mean, unless you and I were to codify, like, a 15-second hug means <laughs> this and... Yeah. You're looking up something? I'm, I'm looking up something from Victor Borge, who is a Danish comedian. Funny guy. He, uh, he has this comment about trying to communicate the issues of... I think he, he was talking somewhere near the advent of, like, radio. Uh, and if someone's reading something, then they can't tell what the grammar is. So he said, we, well, we just need to get used to, like, speaking grammar. So, for instance, a, a period might be, and then uh, a comma would be, and then uh, a dash would be, and, you know, quotation marks might be. Um, so he would do this thing of, like, uh, I've just got random text in front of me. So, like, in a prior post, I discussed how to keep your sentence level instruction fresh and fun. In addition, you can also break up the casual classroom routine with some YouTube videos on grammar topics. As a bonus, videos appeal to students with varied styles of learning. <laughs> to like, that wasn't a very good sentence to read from. You should go look up Victor Borge and his uh, grammar. I like grammar to hear topic. the ellipse thread. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it is does. That's funny. Um, anyway, so like, yeah, how do we how do we codify and communicate language? In middle school, I created a an alphabet, a code to like communicate. Hmm. Um, Why'd you do that? Uh, because I'd because I was a super Lord of the Rings nerd. Nice. Um, and I was too. I felt it was too difficult to uh, learn the the Elvish script. I made up a script, and it looked a lot like Hebrew. Yeah. Actually. Well, Tolkien was big on language. He loved language, and but he created grammar and everything, including a script, in numerous languages. Yes. And it makes me wonder, what are the limits of language? Oh my God. How far can we go with this? And the reason why this is so exciting to me, my personal thing, the there there have been studies that have shown why. Kenyan runners in particular are so frequently the winners of these uh, marathons around the world. Mm-hmm. Frequently, it's people from Kenya. And what they found is that um, the average student would often have to run 15 miles a day to school and back. And when your entire population is doing so, you are training everyone for being in the best shape. And so then the cream of the crop obviously become presumably the best in the world. It's like Estonian singers. Yeah. If they're always singing, then they become some of the best singers. But it's actually on the note of singing that I'm really interested in. What if we were to have a singing language? Mm. A language (gasps) where everything was sung, not spoken. And so the different tones matter, 
different note progressions matter, mm. timing matters, and what you end up with is a people group. Mm-hmm. Presumably, if you if you can develop this into a language and teach it to enough people that it has a critical mass to survive and sustain yeah. itself, you have a people group who learn pitch perfectness because at a That's very young age, you. your brain is adaptable to that. Mm-hmm. You, you have to in order to be able to speak the language. It'd be like having a speech impediment if you didn't, or even worse. Well, yeah, you would be left out. <laughs> um, and So you'd have perfect pitch. You would have highly trained vocal cords and um, your diaphragmatic, you know, breathe, everything involved in singing would be so finely tuned from such a young age. Yeah. I can't imagine how incredible the best singers of that community would be. Yeah. Especially considering a large, you know, talk about a country of millions of people. Yeah. The best singers there would be... Would they, would they even enjoy singing? Would, would, they, would they go to a concert to hear someone sing? Would that be the same as us going to hear someone read from a book? Well, people do that, or they go to a play or something, right? That's just words. Right? There, there could be a very important thing to be said. Yeah. In any language. And, and would they hear other songs and hear their language oh, overlapped in the words? It would be like a whole new form of synesthesia. Oh, that'd be in... Okay. Like, tasting colors. I, I hope someone makes this language someday, because... It would be beyond my musical capacity to design... <laughs> By a long shot. Yeah. You'd have to have a music theorist plus a linguophile as one person. Which is possible. Yeah. I'm an oceanographic theater person. <laughs> <sighs> language. Any final final words, final thoughts on language, Byron? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I, I yeah, I had a short story about a friend of mine uh, speaking in tongues. Back to that mm. for a second. Um, once upon a time, though, um, doodly do. I, I had a friend who, uh, was pretty charismatic, um, but didn't have a lot of, like, cultural background in it. They just had kind of the spiritual inclination towards it, but very little of the grounding. Anyway, they, they had this experience where they, and I've never spoken in tongues. I don't quite understand speaking in tongues, uh, even biblically. I think it's a rather misunderstood concept the as, as to its necessity and stuff anyway i, I had this friend who because because um the bible talks about two different types of speaking in tongues one is the tongues of men or tongues of humanity like different languages the people at pentecost for instance being able to speak hypothetically cantonese or you know ethiopian whatever the languages yeah. of the people who were there so learning or knowing without having learned how to speak a completely different language and there's, you know, even modern examples of that somehow. I had a friend in high school who, um, when she had a certain type of panic attack, she could only speak Cantonese. Hmm. Um, uh, there's this story of this Australian kid who, like, had a brain injury and woke up only being able to speak, again, like, Chinese. Um, and he had never studied it or whatever. I don't know how that happens, like, in a, in a natural way. Uh, but the other type of language is uh the the tongues of angels right which is hypothetically unintelligible right if i was to record a hundred different people quote unquote speaking in tongues 
I don't think they would sound the same. Like, they certainly don't sound the same. I've heard a couple people, like, speaking tongues, and it's not the same language. So angels have different languages. So to speak. Well, not that they have different languages, but I don't think the angel language, maybe they do, but I don't think the angel language is intelligible as, you know, you couldn't do some linguistic <laughs> dissection and try to, like, learn yeah. what the angel language is. Um, but this particular friend of mine, like, told me that they could speak ancient Hebrew or, like, Arabic or something, and I, like, can kind like, I was raised in the Middle East, so I can at least identify whether or not a language, whether or not that was that language, or what, you know, even just listening closely enough, whether or not it was a language at all. You mm -hmm. can tell a language from gibberish. Um, with enough training, and I, I speak enough of a couple different languages to identify, like, that's a language. That's not a language. That's just some, like, gobbledygook. And my friend started speaking, and I'm like, I don't think that's a language. I don't think that's tongues. Now, that gets into a whole other topic of, like, spiritual gifts and stuff, which gets convoluted and, and on, Teaser. on tricky ground, but... For later. <sighs> Yeah, but anyway, that's just like a short my my experience of the concept of like speaking in tongues and stuff. But I'm I'm open to it. I'm I'm open to figuring out what some of that stuff looks like. Um, I just don't think that language can truly capture any language that is intelligible to humans can truly capture something that reflects the true undiluted reality of God. Mm language will always fall short yeah yeah maybe we can describe god sure but certainly not define god and it's not just it's not just our brains that are limited in that capacity it's it's language itself there we go love it that was good good last note thanks for listening to barefoot to Emmaus. join us next time we'll see you later L we love you bye <laughs>